Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Stop the Killing is proud to be supported by our sponsor, EZPA. EZPA is an integrations-capable communication software that connects older building systems, such as signage and public address systems, to modern software technologies, such as panic alarms and mass communication systems. Go to EZPA.com, that's E-Z-Y-P-A.com, to learn how to integrate your systems today. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Catherine, today we're going to be talking about a school shooting, but this one is actually not for a change in the US. So we're going to be talking about an incident that happened way back in 1996, the 13th of March in Dunblane, Scotland, which is near Stirling. And it's one that probably people in the UK refer to as the Dunblane Massacre. Why have you chosen this case? So I wanted to talk about this instance because I think that one, it's international, and I think it's important for us to talk about how things are handled elsewhere and some solutions that others tried and some parts of those that are good and some parts of those that are bad. This happened in March, so the school year was well underway, and this was in a school that had 640 students in it. It's actually a pretty big school, and because of that, there were a lot of classrooms and they had regular school assemblies every day. And so keeping that in mind, this is an early morning shooting at a school, which I think is instructive that this is not uncommon. We see often that the school shootings occur in the earlier hours of the day. The inquiry tells us that at 8.15 in the morning, the shooter was seen by a neighbor scraping ice off of his car. And it, he had really normal chit chat with the neighbor. And then he just drove off in his car towards Dunblane. He lived down the road in uh, Sterling. He arrived about 9.30 near the school, and he parked his van by a telephone pole and cut some telephone wires, perhaps because he thought they were to the school. Actually, they only serviced the houses nearby. And then he had with him a huge amount of firepower. He had four handguns and 743 rounds of ammunition. That is so much. He fired about 100 of them, just over 100. And he enters the school by way of a kind of a side door. The building has six entrances, and although two of the 
entrances are controlled by these, you know, push bars for emergency exits. But this was uh, one of the largest primary schools in Scotland. It was very big. It had this big assembly hall, but it really wasn't big enough to put 640 kids in. So they would rotate kids in and out for the morning assembly. And so they were doing that. The primary kids had attended the first morning assembly, about 250 kids, and they were with their teachers and the school chaplain. They were in the process of changing, you know, for gym lessons. And so kids were beginning to start their day. And there was a teacher there, Mrs. Mayer. She's 47 years old. She was there with her students. And I mention her because she's the teacher who was killed with many of her students. So the assembly ends. And as she and her class make their way to the gym, they pass by where the shooter has come in to the school building and enters the gymnasium. The gym teacher is already there. But as you can imagine, what happens is he sees her, he sees the children, and he heads into the gym. She's trying to get her class to, you know, move along, move along, move along. And they begin to hear that he is outside the gym and he begins to fire at students. He's wearing a dark jacket and he's got his own ear protection on because he doesn't want to hurt his ears. Thank you very much. Um, And he advances into the gym and he begins to fire in rapid succession at whoever he can see. And immediately there are teachers who are hit. Students begin to get hit. And very quickly, in a matter of a couple of minutes, he is in the gym. He fires at people. Then he kind of turns around and then he fires at a few more and then he spins around and then he fires at a few more. And where he is able to hit kids, they drop to the ground. Like he's standing in the middle of the gym and he's firing at whoever he can see. And at one point, he sees a bunch of kids who are on the ground who've been hit and he walks right over to them and he fires again, point blank at them. So this Mm -hmm. is a very horrible person doing a very horrible thing. Horrific. There are other children who hear the shooting. There's like a young man who's out in the hallway who's older. He's primary seven. And he, you know, gets shot at, gets glass from the window, pain that breaks. He gets hit with things like that. But the primary deaths occur and injuries occur in that area in the gym because he continues to fire. And he moves, you know, towards the edge of the gym and looks at like the library and he fires over to there. He moves towards this hallway, he sees somebody else. So any person he sees, he fires. But as much as I'm telling you, oh, he's moving and he's firing. It really only lasts, as the inquiry shows us, a couple of minutes. They think maybe three or four minutes. But I'm sure to the people who were there, it seemed like forever, right? Now, I wanted to mention this one thing about a teacher, one of the teachers, and the inquiry gave us information about one of the teachers who immediately told her students to get down on the floor. And I want to bring this up here because I've been harping about run, hide, fight and how schools need to make sure that they teach run, hide, fight to kids. And that a lot of times we just teach the kids to crouch down in the classroom and then that's it, right? So I want to clarify here. There was an instance in this case where he is firing towards the hallway and he fires towards one of the classrooms. But moments earlier, because the teacher heard what was going on, the teacher told the children to get down. And rounds that went through the classroom hit chairs and things, but didn't hit any kids on the ground. Being on the ground for a moment is not a bad thing. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because that would have been instinctual of the teacher because I don't imagine in 1996 in the UK that they were doing any kind of run-hide-fight training. Would that be right? Oh, right. I think that's absolutely true, right? Mm. That's absolutely true. But the teacher instinctively said, get down, right? She's immediately saying, get down. And of course, in the inquiry, then you track where did the rounds go? And they know that when he shot into that room, some of those rounds went into the classroom, including one that they recorded went into a chair where a child had been sitting. Gosh, but for the grace of that teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's a very quick reaction by the teacher saved a child's life, which a teacher would say, of course, that's my job, right? But a job that a teacher would never think that they're responsible for. That's what I would say. So in this case, the shooter had been in the gym and then firing at different classrooms. So of the 700 rounds, nearly 800 rounds that he carried, he fired 105 of them, 105. And three to four minutes. Three to four minutes. Right. Okay. He was carrying a nine millimeter pistol. That's what he was killing all these people with. And that's Um, important when we go to talk about the guns later, keep in mind that it was a pistol, a handgun. Right. And then when he killed himself in the gym, surprise ending, Mm. he picked up a different handgun and just killed himself with it. I think based on where they tracked the rounds, that it appeared that he was firing indiscriminately at anything he saw that was moving. And by the time that he finished, Mrs. Mayer and 15 children were dead. The children's ages were all kind of in the five range, very little kids and so tiny. And the idea of him stepping up to them while they're already laying on the ground and firing point blank into them, I can't imagine how a person could do that. I can't imagine how a person could do that. And maybe that's why when he finished shooting people, he killed himself. You're right. You can't get your head around somebody doing that to those little babies. The other thing I was going to mention about Dunblane is you said that it's quite a big school, 650, but the actual town itself is really small. I think it's less than 10,000 people. So this would have affected pretty much the whole community. And I think that's something, you know, you don't automatically think about because I think we see tragedy on television and movies. So Mm -hmm. you're disassociated from it. But when we have a shooting that occurs in a community like this, the Sandy Hook shooting was in a community of 5,000 people. The people who are responding have children at the schools and neighbors at the schools, the firefighters who are responding. It could be their own children. It could be their nieces, their nephews, and chances are it is. After this incident, that small community's voices raised the roof, and we actually had some action taken with the gun laws. Yeah, there were. And it's interesting to have this conversation. And I know you have the details of them there, but this was before Columbine, right? This is early on in a decision, you know, by a country to say, hey, what's happening and what are we going to do about it? And very detailed, precise changes to the laws. Mm -hmm. You want me to give you a little rundown? Yeah, that would be great. So the changes to law reform in the aftermath of this shooting, they affected Scotland, Wales and England, but not Northern Ireland. So it's still legal to have handguns in Northern Ireland. But in those other countries, handguns were banned. Tougher background checks, police background checks. You had to have clearance by a doctor. So that's like that mental health tick there as well that we've often talked about. And you've got to have had... Two independent witnesses testify to your character, plus you need to secure your weapon. And 
The other thing that happened at that time was there was a temporary buyback of handguns to ease some of the resistance to it. You know, we often talk about how this whole phenomena of these mass shootings, particularly in schools, is a new phenomenon. And, you know, this is 1996. No country that we know of has necessarily got it right because we're still in this experimental phase of trying to work out what pieces work, what pieces don't. But of those law reforms that they did in Scotland, which ones stick out to you as being like, yes, that's a, that I can see that working or you would like to see in other countries? I love that secure the weapons. And I know in the United Mm -hmm. States, we went through a time period when it was required to secure weapons, but that is a voluntary thing. And even though we know here in the United States, two out of three firearms deaths are suicide. So many people still do not secure their guns. People put on a seatbelt because it's the law. They don't necessarily want it, but once it becomes a law, you put it on because you don't want to be ticketed for it. So I like the secure the weapons, but I don't think there's as many opportunities to actually see if somebody doesn't have their weapons secured. So securing the weapons is super important, but I don't think it's a great deterrent all the time. Now, I don't know, most people are, most people try to be law abiding. And if there was a law that said they had to secure their weapon, maybe they would. So I love the concept of that. But I think in addition to that, there's a police check and a doctor check and um, two character witnesses. The whole concept behind that is we're going to do a check on this person's stability, this person's fragility, whether this person is angry all the time, whether he's had brushes with the law before or hasn't. But police checks by nature are not going to catch the bulk of what actually occurs in a person's life. And I would give you as an example, a domestic abuser. You could have a person who is a domestic abuser to their spouse or their partner, and they are for 20 or 30 years, but they may never be called to the carpet on it because just inherently it's not uncommon for victims in domestic abuse to never call the police and neighbors who know it's happening never call the police. So I think that anonymity goes a long ways. And if we were able to provide character witness testimony in an anonymous way, people would be more honest, but better to get the two character notes from somebody because a person who's isolated himself and doesn't seem to have any outward support system, it might be harder for that person to find two people who are going to give him genuine, uh, unrelated character witness support. So I like that. And I think in Scotland, you know, now we have years and years and years to show that maybe it has helped to cut down on this type of shooting in Scotland, if not all shootings in Scotland. In fact, statistically, I read afterwards that the gun crimes dropped by 80% in the first five years after these law reforms were pushed through. And that's not to say, I mean, you know, you and I are quite kind of down the line in the fact that we don't say this is the right way, this is the wrong way. And to balance that out, when I was reading more about this, that criminals are still bringing in guns in other ways to get around those laws. Is that just always going to be the case? We put laws in and then the criminals find smarter ways to get around them? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that it's very easy when you're sitting in the pub to solve the world's problems. But when you work in the reality of it day to day, you realize that there's no black and white, but every little piece helps. So I don't think there's a panacea. As long as firearms exist and anger exists, right, there will continue to be people who can find a way to get the firearms they want. I mean, something we haven't discussed here, but one of the other issues is that here in the States, we manufacture a lot of guns. 
that get exported, some of them oftentimes trafficked illegally to other countries. When you talk about the black market and the guns coming in, I'm looking at these rules that they've put in as almost like a hurdles race. Somebody's starting it with the intention to fire at the end of the race. And however many people start that race, some of them are going to get tripped up along the way and not get to the end goal. That's great. I love that. I love Mm. that. That's a great descriptor of it because we don't really know how many people are going to trip on the hurdles. And the hurdles might be the character witness. The hurdles might be the inavailability of the ammunition. During the pandemic here in the States, I'm sure everywhere else, people began hoarding ammunition. There was just this view that ammunition was going to disappear and that the world was going to We were worried about toilet paper and and pasta and you guys are worried about ammunition. (laughs) Well, they worried about toilet paper here too, but probably not (laughs) too much else. Toilet paper and ammunition. We're Americans. Um, Yeah, that is sad. I did not hoard ammunition. I just want you to know. So a lot of places put limits on how much ammunition you can get. And some states limit how much you can buy just legally. It's one more hurdle, like you're saying. I think those are great. I love that description. And now a word from our sponsor. EasyPA is an integration-capable communication software that connects older building systems such as signage and public address systems, to modern software technologies, such as panic alarms and mass notification systems. Additional features include built-in automated bell schedules, remote access, text-to-natural voice announcements, and custom audio playlists. EZPA is one of the only full-service public address and communications companies that has in-depth knowledge on both the hardware and software aspects of communication and evacuation-based products. As a solution-based company, they offer design, supply, installation, and maintenance of all their products. And for use in schools, EZPA software provides multi-zone capabilities, pre-scheduled daily announcements and bells, and a remote alert button that can be accessed from anywhere in the school. Once a panic alarm is triggered, law enforcement is notified immediately. EZPA makes schools safer from any threat. Go to EZPA.com, that's E-Z-Y-P-A.com, to learn how to integrate your systems today. If you want to be a reseller or integrations partner, visit EZPA.com to learn more. That's E-Z-Y-P-A.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I wanted to share just a terrible thing. We didn't know at the time. Now I think we have a much better idea of what happens physically when somebody is shot especially a little tiny child, right? And one of the things that happened back then is, of course, they wanted to identify the students right away who were killed and injured, but the teacher was dead. So they couldn't have the teacher just identify them. Oh my goodness. So one of the things that they did is, and I don't say this with any blame, but think about what we know now and what we wouldn't do. Then there was an urgency to identify the children who were killed and take care of the children who were injured. It was so early in the day, they actually hadn't mocked attendance yet. So they didn't know for sure who was in the classroom. There's all these little tiny kids. So they asked other adults who worked in the school 
to come in and out of the gym to try to identify these children. Oh my God, that just wouldn't happen now, would it? It certainly wouldn't in the United States. For one thing, you know, we always try to protect the crime scene. There was understandably a concern about who are these children. And as you mentioned, this is a small town and we need to get a hold of parents and there is that urgency. But that's just trauma on trauma. Right. Certainly unintended, no criticism meant of the people there in Scotland as they chose to do this. They were doing what they thought was best. And the benefit is they were getting maybe faster identification of children, but they did bring in adults who had worked with children where they're looking at clothing, trying to see if they might recognize that child. I remember when we covered, I think, the Sandy Hook case, there was a point in that case that Parents were left in there for ages, not knowing. And Sandy Hook, you know, Catherine Turman, who ran the Department of Justice Mm -hmm. here and the FBI's Victim Services Division, pretty much was the founder, the creator of our program overall. She's somebody I should call. Catherine's amazing. She and I have had many conversations through the years, and she's the one who said really what they need is, you know, Kleenex, accurate information and some cold water. That's what they need at first. And she was aware of the fact that in Sandy Hook, there were parents who were sent to the local firehouse, which was right nearby, a very small town. Parents were sent there. You know, eventually there were 20 sets of parents or some version of at the firehouse who still had no information hours later because the police and law enforcement were doing what they wanted to do, which was to ensure accuracy in identifying who was killed. They didn't want to tell somebody, we think your child might be dead. And Catherine, uh, of course, the wisdom of of years of experience, she said, it's better that you say that. They're thinking of it already. You need to get to a point where you need to say, we're going to tell you preliminarily, we think your child might be dead. You know, we're checking with the hospitals and we're checking with the, because people get transported. Nobody's wearing name tags. And so people get transported and maybe somebody did survive, or maybe a child ran out of the classroom, ran away. At Virginia Tech, there was a student in the classroom where most of the college students were killed, astonishingly, who, because he was in the back of the room in a location where he was not hit, I think he was the only one not hit by a bullet. And he left the classroom. As soon as it happened, he left because that's what you would do. He fled. And for a certain amount of time, they didn't even know there was this additional student in the classroom. But Catherine Terman said, you've got to tell them ahead of time. And so someplace between what happened in Dunblane, where they ask other people to come in to the crime scene and you know, at that point, they had a shooter who killed himself. The idea of preserving evidence for a crime scene was probably not at the top of their minds. It was saving the children, identifying the victims, notifying the parents, trying to do that recovery. But in the process, I'm sure completely unintentionally, well, sometimes the people who can identify the children right away are going to be re-victimized if they have to come in and physically see somebody. So don't do that to somebody. Just be patient. The law enforcement is doing the best they can, and they've learned through the years. And I did check while we were talking, 25 members of her class were five years old. Three of them were six years old. Just little buttons. Little buttons, right, right. So that's just terrible, 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 terrible situation. Tell me about the killer. So there are a couple of key points about his background that I think are very instructive. One is that he has spent a lot of his life working in the Boy Scouts kind of regions. So you might say, oh, he's a Boy Scout leader. Okay, yeah, but I don't want to shun all Boy Scout leaders, except, she says, except that he had been essentially, I think, kicked out of the Boy Scouts. And he wasn't happy about that. I think we can conclude. But, you know, why was he kicked out? So he was known 
as a person who had and organized not only scouting meetings, but also <clears throat> scouting overnights, scouting summer camps, things like that. It sends a chill down your spine, doesn't it? Yeah. The part that should send the chill down the spine is that the complaints that were coming in, for example, him insisting that the boys in his scouting troop wear these little short shorts that he issued to them. And then he would take pictures of them, of the boys, and he would have them move in various gymnastics poses. Red flag, red flag, red flag. Exactly. So he had been involved in the scouts for a long time, but he thought that the scouts themselves were trying to undermine his work. He was running these clubs and he was issuing these essentially what looked like swim trunks, right, to them. And the parents were beginning to complain and the local police were beginning to complain. And then he held summer camps. Now, this occurred in 96. He had summer camps in 88 and in 91. And he had this residential sports training course in 1992 that was investigated by police because of complaints. Inquiries and the concerns about him continued so that by 94, 95, 96, right up to the shooting, he wasn't able to lease a place to hold his scouting activities because people were kind of too creeped out by him. That's probably not the official term, but that's what I think. So he was frustrated, as you can imagine. And in fact, in one spot where he wanted to lease a space for his uh, scouting group, they wouldn't let him. And he literally took a gun out and showed it to a woman and kind of threatened her with it. No. So you're like, what? Did anything get like done after that? No, she never reported it to police. There's no evidence she reported it to police. They discovered it after the shooting. Stuff like that happens all the time where people make threatening statements or threatening gestures, display a weapon. If somebody displays a weapon while they're yelling at you or fighting with you, if you're having a confrontation car to car and there's a weapon displayed, if you have a neighbor who tells you to go away and shows a weapon to tell you to go away, you have to report that to police. I know Mm. you don't want to get involved, but then please just report it anyway and tell them you don't want to talk about it anymore, but you want to report it. Give the police the tools they need. Give the police the tools they need. So what happened when they went back and they looked at some of the activities and actions that he had been involved in, by the time that the shooting occurred in March of 96, the scout clubs were in serious decline and he was in major financial trouble. He was very resentful of those who claimed that he was a pervert. And he knew that people in the community were discouraging boys from attending the clubs. Although he had some early interest in firearms, uh, he had no interest for years in firearms. And after like an eight-year gap, which coincidentally came along in the 90s, he suddenly has this resurgence of interest in firearms. He questions a retired police officer about how police respond to shootings and how long it would take them to get to a school, for instance. Or um, I wonder he cut those phone lines. Talk mm-hmm. about premeditation. He talks to a boy about the layout of this particular school, and the boy gives him some descriptions. This so, is just red flag after red flag, though, isn't it? So what do you see in there? And here's the question. Would you have reported any of that, right? Okay, what would I have reported? Let's have a look. You can hear that kind of grievance collector behavior starting with the clubs not working out for him. Don't think I would have reported any of that because there was no like obvious action. The renewed interest in the firearms, again, that's a really hard one, isn't it? Because he's been genuinely interested in firearms previously before by the sounds of it. Yep. 
if I'm just seeing a person coming back and renewing his license or what have you, then no, that's not necessarily a red flag. I'm one person at a shop probably that would see that. Haven't got right. all those other factors in play. And you then, don't know at that shop that he has no. financial troubles. Another trigger, the financial troubles. Yeah, so it's really hard to put it all together. My question would be definitely scary that he'd talk to the police about what their response was, but they could have taken that as well. He's a scout leader or was a scout leader. Maybe he's doing that from a safety area. So yeah. again, no, I probably wouldn't have reported that. Right. Maybe but it's just was, chatter. Yeah, a neighbor but, who he just has a conversation with. Was there anyone in his actual world that would have been able to see more than one of these signs together? Did he have a wife, children, mother? I don't know is the answer to that mm. question. Because I think whether that's the not, only opportunity, isn't it, if you can see a crossover of some of those things. So I think this is instrumental for two completely, perhaps different reasons. The first one is when we look at all of those facts together, it seems like, wow, this guy was on a collision course and he was exactly. going to crash. We know yeah. he was going to crash. And so here's the first reason why it's helpful, I think, to have these conversations. When you, I say you, the listener, it's very easy to look back, see all the things and criticize why somebody wasn't caught, why something wasn't done. That's just frustration. We're all frustrated when a shooting occurs. And we say, there were all these signs. I think it's really important to understand that all the signs only come together nine months after the fact when you have an opportunity to look at the inquiry that was done. So I mentioned in the beginning how I think that it was valuable to have this inquiry. And a lot of times, a shooting that occurred in the 90s, many times there wouldn't have been any inquiry done. But because this was such a devastating shooting in Scotland, just like the devastating shooting in Australia, devastating shooting in New Zealand, they did full-blown inquiries that said, what are all the facts? That's really valuable. It's always valuable to pull all the facts together, even if you couldn't have prevented it. What mm-hmm. would you have reported out of that? If you're just Joe Blog citizen, this is my little, you know, biased end of the corner here. But mm. I would wonder with that police officer, that's kind of a crazy thing to ask somebody. And I think you're right, though. It's very possible that the way he phrased it and how he put it, he might have not flagged it. But a police officer should always be aware that people don't talk to you uh, for, you know, random reasons. And I think the sad part is that he manipulated a child to get information about the school. And I don't know that there's any way that anybody would have known that. But when you mentioned about the people around him, financial trouble, you know, we don't have just in the facts that I'm giving you, we don't have any great details about how somebody knew that he was in a lot of financial trouble. But financial trouble, I mean, I know people who have been in, in major financial troubles, and you see it coming, everybody around them sees it coming. And it's incremental. You never start with he's bankrupt. You start with he's having trouble paying his bills or they can't afford to put new clothes on their kids' backs and things like that. So financial troubles grow and only somebody who's really close by is going to see that where I feel like they're probably, except for the police officer action, I might not have seen anything offhand. But if I was within his closer circle, I would have known about the financial troubles. I would have known about, in fact, the accusations of pedophilia were known within the community. And that clearly is, that is such a stigma as it should be attached to that there's a lot of pressure on an individual. And so people who knew he was having financial troubles and who knew that he was dealing with this accusation that he might be a pedophile, to see a gun in a person's hand at that point would worry me. Let's not forget that people did actually make complaints, didn't they? These were Mm -hmm. complaints that did go to the police. So there Mm -hmm. was moments that 
he should have perhaps been looked at closely. But do you know what happened with those complaints? Where did they go? Did they have the power to take the license out of his hand? That's as if you had written that transition just so I could move to this other point I wanted to make. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Yay. Synergy. Um, Exactly. I think so. Just before I go to that, I was saying before, there's two reasons why I think it's good to have this conversation. One is that it's important to do the inquiry, but it's easy to look back and see all the facts. The second reason is that it really tells us how important it is to report something that you don't think might be relevant, but it is a behavior of concern. Yeah. Imagine the number of people who might have known that he was denied the ability to hold Boy Scout camps, and then somebody had to have seen him purchasing ammunition. Somebody had to have seen him purchasing handguns. Somebody may have seen him doing target practice. So there were people in the community who potentially right, had the opportunity to know this individual who was kind of creepy, now had guns, which was less common. In, in Scotland at this time. So something to consider, you don't know what's relevant. So report it. That's the second part. Because when we look back at it, it's easy to see them all together and say, oh, police should have known and done something about it. No, these are all little disparate pieces that until the pieces are put together, they don't make the puzzle. You can't see the picture. So in this case, People did report to the police. And this is another thing that I hear from people. I report it, nothing happens. Yeah, I'm just saying reported anyway. And remember that police are limited in the actions they can do. And here's one of the things that we've learned since Dunblane through the last 30 some years is that it's not just a problem for the police. That's why schools have threat assessment teams. That's why businesses have them. And how many of them have them? Very few compared to what they should do. But the concept of a threat assessment team is it is law enforcement, but it's also human resources. It's also the school counselor. It's also the gym teachers, the coaches, people who can get together and say, hey, I'm interacting with this person and people are telling us these pieces of information. And then that threat assessment team is able to do a threat analysis to try to mitigate the threat. So in fact, that's exactly what happened here, right? There were systems in place for instance, to get authorization to have more than one handgun. The inquiry afterwards found that this individual was allowed to buy four handguns, which was very unusual in that area at the time. So there, these licenses that he had for these handguns, first of all, purchased several of them with very flimsy kind of excuses for why he needed them. And then he was able to renew them on a regular basis without having to provide much of a justification for why he wanted to and still wanted to continue to have these handguns. So those were two changes, I think, that were brought about by the inquiry right away. We live in a world that has firearms, and we're going to have bad people who can acquire them. But I think that the types of shootings, and including these mass shootings, we've seen two things change, right? We've seen less shootings in many countries where firearms are less available. You see less shootings because there's less opportunities to amass what this gentleman acquired. And then we also see much more preparedness in terms of prevention. So we're hardening our targets a little bit more. We're learning that it's okay to lock your doors. And then even after the fact, how we recover from them, we do a better job of that, protecting and helping a community come together and survive and thrive despite it in their new normal. So I think those are good things that that come out of bad. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing.
Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims... Subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Listen to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. It's a fun show about weird stuff. New episodes every Wednesday, yeah, eggheads. I'm Art. And I'm Andy. And Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time is a podcast about conspiracies, the paranormal, UFOs, Unsolved Mysteries. We're going to be discussing the Kennedy assassinations. Oh, yeah, that's his nickname, finger-banging Bob Lazar. Give me some aliens with some good frickin' spacecraft. The whole enchilada. <laughs> the only thing bigger than Bigfoot's feet are our egos. If you like simulation theory, ancient history, egghead science, and Mandela effect, that kind of stuff. So check it out. New episodes every Wednesday. All the links you need on MrBunkersConspiracyTime.com. And we'll see you in the bunker.